Okay. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, March 23rd. We got some Chapo coming at you. Uh, joining us for today's show, it's been too long. One of our oldest friends back on the show, it's Libby Watson. Libby, what's up? Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, I've, I've, I've had a busy week um, from taking in Some Like It Hot on Broadway. Um, got a little trouble there, but, you know, when you got to go, you got to go. Do you guys see that? Someone took a shit next to Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton <laughs> yeah, <at her> Broadway. No. <laughs> I was I was I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the Law and Order Criminal Intent episode where like the three minutes left in the episode twist is that a woman did it. <laughs> <laughs> that would so you, be the so greatest like, twist of all time. Okay, but so it's Felix, like, who, uh, I, I honestly I on, okay, pretend I'm Detective Robert Gorin here. Pretend I'm towering over you and I'm going out of my way to make eye contact instead of just not caring about it like I usually do. I just got the report back from the ME. Um, there's a lot of milk bar in this feces sample. <laughs> a man didn't do this. This was a woman who shit here. That would be... I, 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 I mean, like, I think it's more likely. Like, who else is going to, who you know, some like it hot? Or whatever. Wait a minute. That's a movie. What? what I, I don't understand. It's a, yeah, it's a musical. Yeah, but it's also now on someone yeah. probably did like a Broadway adaptation. Yeah, they probably did like an adaptation. Where yeah. has our Rodgers and Hammerstein's gone? Well, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some changes to it that are good. But I feel like um, you, you've you've moved on to Criminal Intent from Special Victims Unit. Yeah, and it's given me my own. I came up with like a really good, like shitty idea for a cop show uh, this morning because of it. I thought of a premise for like an Apple TV series. There's a married killer, a married serial killer couple called the Adam and Eve killers <laughs> that leave a photo of an apple tree every time they kill a family. And e with each successive killing, the apple tree gets bigger. Oh. And it's implied that when the apples are ready to pick, they're going to do like a really, like something really bad finally. Could he maybe, like, could they also maybe leave an apple seed in the victim's mouth? That's pretty gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or in their pussy or something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what about the, uh, 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 an apple, apple in their mouth like apple a pig? Seeds. Oh, like a pig, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Lest I mean, forget. Detective Gorin would get to the bottom of that in a second because Law and Order Criminal Intent is the most bullshit of the... I love it because, like, I, I really like D'Onofrio, but, like, he is such a bullshit character. Like in a single episode, it will be it will be revealed that he knows every type of like woodworking wood, and like he'll like he'll look at somebody's workshop and be like, he couldn't have built a playset with balsa, balsa would fall apart. He said he was in his studio. He's lying. He'll know like the history of competitive sailing. He'll like hear he'll hear a fragment of an audio recording of someone speaking uh like Thai and be like. He's speaking Thai with a Malaysian accent. That's just um, that's just Sherlock without the mind palace. That's just what yeah. Sherlock does. <laughs> yeah, he just he, um, he just he solves crimes by like knowing everything, which isn't he's not really like investigating. Yeah, that's cheating actually. If you just know everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a, a a quick a quick note here for the Adam and Eve serial killer storyline. Mm. Uh, lest we forget. Um, apple seeds contain trace amounts of cyanide in them, or so I've been told. That's true. So maybe he could be like, maybe the couple could be poisoning people by making them eat up to 10,000 apple seeds, <laughs> which I think is enough to kill yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Malcolm Gladwell's I, I, new thing. Eat 10,000 apple seeds to become really good at um, whatever the fuck it is that he thinks you're supposed to be good at. Skiing, I guess. <laughs> uh, before we get uh, started on today's show, I just I just want to share with uh, Felix a Law and Order Special Victims Unit moment uh, that I, I experienced this week. I want to know if you remember the episode. It's uh, it's it's an iced tea uh, it's an iced tea focused episode that stars Martha Plimpton as the guest star, and she's like this like strung out junkie, and basically she's carrying around a baby's finger in her purse, and it's all about how her mom like let let her infant sister die, and put the body in like a trunk in their house for their entire life. So uh, they 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 find this infant skeleton. And this is like, I don't know, this probably came out in like 2002, 2004 or something like that. And they use like like the, the crime scene guys use like that era of PlayStation graphics to like uh, <laughs> approximate what the infants or like what she would have looked like as a toddler. And then at the end of the episode, Ice-T is sort of bonded with this woman because like, you know, she wants to be in recovery. And, he, and she's like, she's been exonerated at the end. She didn't kill her sister. It's her mom is the evil one. Um and then, like, he's like, I got something for you. And she's like, oh, what is this? And she, like, he opens up an envelope and takes out a framed photo of what her sister would look like. But it looks like <laughs> a PS1 graphic. And he's She looks like, like Xavier Renegade Angel. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, this is your last excuse for not going to rehab. And because she said, like, oh, I, I don't even remember what my sister looks like or something like that. And that's when I use that's when I use smack or whatever. And he's like, I took away your last excuse for not going to rehab. Look at this cool photo of your sister. <laughs> <laughs> I watched a really good Tutola episode in season 24. It was the most recent. Episode oh, my I've God. <laughs> um, OK, so he he gets an award for like um, he gets the Harlem Heart Award. And like get you know they're 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 partying and Benson takes him home and he like you know he wakes up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and there's a guy in his living room and it turns out that like Ice T got this guy sent to prison for 23 years when he was working as a narco narcotics detective and it's the entire the entire episode is like the Law and Order franchise like reconciling with the war on drugs because this guy got raped like in in jail and the entire episode is ice tea and this cop who has 11 million dollars from a wrongful termination lawsuit but still works <laughs> as a detective like solving the crime and arresting the crooked ceo and the guy who was in lockup with him and that and like at the end of the episode it's basically implied like okay uh, we, um, that's that's all we need to do. <laughs> sounds uh, like the problem last two, solved. Yeah, it sounds like the last kind of two or three seasons of Brooklyn Nine Nine, where they realized like, oh shit, we can't. We can't it's not actually. <laughs> we're not allowed to make jokes about cops, uh, and we're not allowed to have every episode be about catching bad guys or whatever. And so, I mean, the last season it was like all this really overwrought kind of like coming to terms with cops being bad stuff uh, and just to get it out of there. I'm trying to, I'm trying to laugh, you know, I'm trying to forget. <laughs> I want my copaganda to make me laugh. Yeah, here's exactly. The thing. Here's the thing. Uh, investigating crimes is the perfect vehicle for a story for television. Mm. And by definition, it's always going to be pro cop. So just reconcile yourself to that and just uh, see these detectives solve some crimes. Hey, here's a segue. Here, here's a crime they should investigate: uh, the Iraq <laughs> War. <laughs> I just I, I bring this up 
I bring this up because it's, I guess, an anniversary of when the war started. It's the 20-year anniversary, the 20-year anniversary of the Iraq War. And old heads like me are, you know, uh, regaling the youths with uh, tales of the nightmare war on terror years. But I want, I want to bring that up in context of this clip I'd like to play for you guys now, featuring Michael Barbaro and um, a journalist at the New York Times discussing uh, just how exactly they, they got the amazing scoop that the Nord Stream pipeline was blown up by a Ukrainian separatist group and definitely not the United States. And just ask the question, is our, is our journalists learning? So, Julian, who exactly was responsible for this attack and how did you and our colleagues go about figuring that out? Well, I think what happened was for much of the investigation, we weren't asking exactly the right questions. Hmm. And what were the right questions? Hmm. Well, we had logically been focused on countries, Mm -hmm. all those states that we just went through. Did Russia do it? Did the Ukraine state do it? And that was just hitting dead end. There's one country that they're leaving out. Officials who were telling us that there was credible evidence pointing at a government. So my colleagues, Adam Entis, Adam Goldman, and I started asking a different question. Could this have been done by non-state actors? Hmm. Could this have been done by Hmm. a group of individuals who were not working for a government? Kind of like freelance saboteurs. So where did you take this (laughs) new question? Well, saboteurs are going to ten ninety nine. Who might these saboteurs be? Saboteurs. If we couldn't answer that, who might they be aligned with? Right? Could they be Mm -hmm. pro-Russian saboteurs? Could they be Uh other saboteurs? (sighs) Other saboteurs. The more we talk to officials who had access to intelligence, the more Uh we saw this theory gaining traction. Mm -hmm. And my initial thought that this could be pro-Russian saboteurs turned out to be wrong. And we learned that it was most likely a pro-Ukrainian group. Hmm. So in other words, a group of people who did this Hmm. on behalf of Ukraine. What, What do you learn that makes you think that's what happened? Michael, I should be very clear that we know really very little, right? This group remains mysterious, and it remains mysterious not just to us, but also to the U.S. government officials that we have spoken to. Okay. That's uh, Michael Barbaro and Julian Barnes of the New York Times explaining uh, the, uh, the the methods of journalism that uh, led them to conclude that uh, the Nord Stream pipeline was blown up by a mysterious group of freelance saboteurs. You know, I gotta say, I mean, it's so fucked up these days with the gig economy and stuff. You can't even get like a full time staff job as a saboteur now. You got to freelance. You know, it's all about who you know. <laughs> they got it there. I'm, I'm looking up uh, how to. <laughs> can you blow up a pipeline on uh, Fiverr? <laughs> <laughs> but like, okay, when they're just like, oh, you know, we started ask out asking questions. You know, there could be a number of states involved with this. Could it be Russia? Could it be Ukraine? And then they just stop there. <laughs> and it just goes, it just like, and then goes on to say, well, then when we started asking the right questions to people with access to the intelligence, we started getting the right answers that like, I don't know, the, the fucking Riddler blow it up or whatever. But like, I mean, like, are, are they throwing Ukraine under the bus with this? Or they're saying like, oh, it's a non-state aligned Ukrainian group. This is a very enthusiastic I mean, like, young gentleman. 
Do you know how fucking hard it would like? What, like the logistics involved in blowing up this pipeline at the bottom of the ocean does not seem to me like something that could be done by uh, some sort of like wildcat uh, Ukrainian nationalist group. Look, they read that one book and uh, answered all their questions. How did that? Yeah. But, how how did the Times figure this out? Did they just go to a vacant apartment and they're like, "Oh my God, books on diving, books on explosives." <laughs> <laughs> And into a 1099 form from Ukraine. <laughs> they came across a trove of dank welding memes Yeah, on a Ukrainian Facebook group. I mean, I bring this up in context of the 20-year anniversary of the Iraq war because, like, isn't this the exact same fucking thing that they did with the WMD intelligence? They were just like, oh, uh, we, we got to ask the right questions to the right people. And the right people are the people in the U.S. intelligence community telling you that uh, Saddam is developing a nuclear weapon. It's just like, and the fact that they can go on there and just like not, not, not betray any skepticism of this shit at all is just, and then Barbaro like just chiming in the back, mmm, mmm, it's like he's eating pudding or something. Like sicko Ron, he's eating pudding with his fingers, going mmm, mmm. Yeah, like a rogue pro-Ukrainian group is the most like dead giveaway i've ever heard that it was just straight up america like that is just that is not even that is like it is that's such like a halfway lie that's like um yeah i was drinking but um someone else drove your car home i mean like okay if we're asking basic questions none of which they're asking as journalists like the first obvious one to me would be like why why not earlier like, why, why not Nord Stream? Why did no one do this to Nord Stream 1? Why didn't people do this to, like, Nord Stream 2 while it was getting built? If, like, just any freelance Ukrainian group could do this? Presum- presumably, like, like, a lot of people would like to do something like this, but I don't know. I guess, I guess it took about a year of the war to work up the confidence for just well, some uh, a team of two guys to try. <laughs> and, like... This pipeline is at the bottom of the ocean, and it's like you know, inches of steel encased in concrete. Like this is not, this is not just like uh, doing a drive-by or something like that. They can't just uh, drop depth charges on it or fucking go down there and just like drill a hole in it. This is an incredibly complicated operation that I, and then again, like Barbaro and Barnes don't seem very interested in it. But like, I guess like I just I bring this up in the context of once again the Iraq War anniversary, and it just seems to me that like. Uh, all of the people who got us into the Iraq war are marking this occasion by writing op-eds. Basically, like, after they spent the last 10 years pretending that the war never happened, they're using the occasion of this anniversary to come back and remind us all that, like, hey, it may, like, look, it may be technically a disaster, but we were all right to do it anyway. Or that, like, you know, our reasons were good for doing it. Or, like, I saw Brett Stevens today being, like, the real WMD was the friends we made along the way. But, I mean... Libby, like, I mean, isn't isn't this just like so demoralizing? I mean, I know I, I know I don't res- I don't respect journalists and I don't respect <laughs> the New York Times, but like, it, isn't isn't this isn't this just like it fucking? It just it makes me want to makes me want to go makes me want to go away for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to me because I know the Daily is like an extremely popular podcast, maybe even more popular than this one, and um, I don't understand it at all. Like it's it's completely baffling to me, um, especially like if apparently the episodes are about like, you know, this is interviewing a journalist about how they did their homework or whatever. It's it's very like I don't know why journalists think that normal people are so interested in how they found out stories, like how they did their 
their jobs because their jobs are pretty, you know, journalism is most of the time a pretty boring job. It's like, well, I talked to this guy and he said this, you know, it's not, it's like, it's like the polar opposite. You know, that show dirty jobs. Um, and it's that guy. Yeah. yeah that guy who like, Mike Rowe. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. And he goes into like, you know, a sewage pipe or, uh, he goes on like a, you know, like a, a fishing boat in Alaska or something. And he's with all these guys who are like, hauling shit every single day uh it's like the polar opposite of that it's like the least interesting job you could imagine talking about i guess like i won't, I won't belabor the iraq war nostalgia much longer but uh i'll, I'll just say that um uh the, the people who did it um it, they were consciously lying these were not just mistakes these were consciously fabricated lies to start a war of choice not self-defense or necessity or anything close like that and there are two kinds of people those who fell for it and those who were in on it so just keep that in mind when you're reading uh, any, any retrospective of the Iraq war. Um, moving on, Libby, uh, I wanted to have you on the show today because, you know, uh, you're, you're sort of on the, the healthcare beat. And, you know, I, I should say, I respect you as a journalist, but, you know, not the profession of journalism. No, don't. <laughs> respect me as a poster, account owner, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, you, you wrote a piece for Defector a couple of weeks back that I wanted to talk about of uh, a, you know, another nightmare phenomenon in the U S healthcare system that I was not aware of that basically is just like, uh, if you own a home and take advantage of Medicaid ever, they can repossess you. They can like basically foreclose on your home after you're dead. Yeah. Um, so is, it's, I, it's is, like, is that basically what's going on here? Kind of. Yeah. It's, it's a little complicated because, uh, and you know, I think obviously it's one of those things that's very complicated by design. Um, and it varies a lot by state. So in some states, if you are over the age of 55 and you use Medicaid at all for like healthcare stuff, you know, going to the doctor, going to the hospital, anything, um, they can uh, quote unquote recover the cost of that from your estate after you die. Uh, in most states, it's just the cost of long-term care. So like nursing homes or having a, a nurse come to your house or or whatever. Um, but yes, in, in many states, it is also just any, any medical costs. Um, and the way it works is basically, uh, when you sign up for Medicaid over that age, um, you sign a form saying, you know, I accept that the state can recover the cost of my treatment or nursing or whatever from my estate after I die. Um, most people who are on Medicaid are <laughs> very poor because it's a program for the poor. Um, and to qualify for long-term care Medicaid, you have to be really, really, really poor. Um, and so for most people, if they have anything left in their estate, the only thing that's likely to be in their estate is their house because that doesn't count towards, um, uh, the like assets that you can have to be on Medicaid. Uh, so basically it means that like, if you have anything to leave to your children when you die and you have Medicaid, uh, the state can put a lien on your house or, you know, basically what they call and recover, um, you know, what, what they say is the cost of your treatment, uh, from your estate after you die. And what is the current cutoff for like, in, like the, the income level at which you can qualify for Medicaid? Well, so uh, it's, you know, this is another thing where like in states that have, exp in states that haven't expanded Medicaid, there is, <laughs> there is no uh, income point low enough where you can qualify just on the basis of being poor. So uh, in like Texas, for example, you can be earning $1 a year and you still don't qualify for Medicaid just for earning $1 a year. Um, but in most states, it's so like who 100. Who would qualify for Medicaid? <laughs> well, in exactly. Texas? 
Uh, I mean, you know, people who are disabled, people who, if you're a parent um, of a of a child, uh, <laughs> not a dog, but a child, um, you can qualify for Medicaid on the basis of that, but you have to. It's it's like an insultingly low amount. It's like you know one hundred and twenty dollars a month or something. Um, and yeah, in most states, like the, it's it's not just that the income level is very low. It's like one hundred thirty eight percent of the poverty level or something, which is like you know fifteen thousand dollars or something like that. It's that the uh, amount of money you're allowed to have in bank accounts and stuff has to be extremely low as well. So you're basically left with two choices: do I uh, <laughs> do I spend all my money on medical care until I have nothing left and then I can get Medicaid or I don't know, like have my kids look after me or, or or whatever. You know, if you have any little bit of money and savings or whatever, then it becomes really hard. And like, you know, the the heartbreaking thing in your piece is the children of, you know, like uh, like like uh, when a parent dies, then like obviously like an unpleasant fact about death is like discovering, you know, the the debts that maybe a loved one had incurred that are now passed on to you. But like, you know, discovering that like their house is now gone too. Or yeah. that the state can recover these med- Medicaid costs by repossessing their home. Right. Yes. It's uh, it's evil. <laughs> it's one I of mean, these. Like, it's. I mean, isn't this just sort of like part and parcel of the many ways in which like these like it, it, intentionally vague and punitive hurdles are introduced into like uh, social benefit programs in this country to sort of punish you for taking advantage of them? Yeah, definitely. I think an important piece of history here is that uh, Medicaid estate recovery, It is first of all, it's mandatory. States have to have an estate recovery program. They have some leeway on how much they, uh, <laughs> like how aggressive they are about uh, recovery, but they every state has to have one. Um, and that has been the case since 1993. This was a Bill Clinton era, you know, part of that whole welfare reform, uh, you know, like welfare queens <laughs> world of, of policies. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's, I think it's meant to be twofold. It is meant to, uh, punish people who do use the programs and scare people off, uh, scare people off using them, which has the benefit of saving some money. But like, where, where does this idea come from that like, okay, Medicaid such that it exists or still is allowed to exist in the States that, you know, can, will, um, allow you to avail yourself of its services. Like, I mean, this is a government program. This is like, we, we, we spend our taxes on this, but like, where does this idea come from that we'd like the state needs to like recoup the costs of the money they pay in Medicaid? Yeah. I mean, it's strange because, uh, you know, advocates will often point out that other government benefits and programs don't work this way where it essentially functions as a loan. Um, but you know, it does, it does kind of crop up, uh, you know, throughout the system. I remember when, um, when I got married and, uh, we applied for my green card, my husband had to sign a form saying that if I ever used Medicaid or any other means tested benefits, that, um, he would be liable to pay the state back for the, for the cost of it. Um, so it's, it's definitely something that like, uh, pops up occasionally. Um, but it's, it's, it is unusual that Medicaid is the only one, uh, you know, you don't have to pay back food stamps or whatever. Although, you know, if you um, there are cases where people have to pay back like disability benefits if they were found to be uh, erroneously paid or unemployment or whatever. Um, there are cases like that. Um, but yeah, it is it is very strange that they kind of honed in on Medicaid and the way that like <laughs> the thing you have to understand about Medicaid estate recovery is that it doesn't even get the states a lot of money. Like I think it would be you know, maybe more not understandable, but explicable, I guess, if um, states were recovering a lot of the money that they were spending on Medicaid. But it's like half a percent of all of the long-term care spending of Medicaid. Like, this is not 
getting back very much money because people who are on Medicaid are fucking poor and they don't have big houses that you can take from. You know, that's generally the way it works. Um, and so I, while reporting the story, really struggled to understand, and I still don't really understand, what determines how aggressive a state will be about Medicaid estate recovery. Uh, you know, the, the US News and World Report did a, a story about this a couple of years ago, and they interviewed the guy who invented it, basically. And he's a real shithead. <laughs> you would be surprised to hear. Uh, you know, it's it's the idea is that it's it's truly like pure American Enterprise Institute libertarian. Uh, you know, this is going to get rid of moral hazard. The idea that people will uh, act. You know, um, what's the word? Kind of irrationally, or uh, you know, spend freely, or whatever. They'll act um, a profligate if, they, if yes. it's too easy. Yeah, exactly. If it's too easy to get, uh, you know, Medicaid, which. <laughs> you know, is not necessarily like if I'm choosing, if I'm a rich guy, let's say, and I'm like, all right, do I want to spend my money on a private long-term care service or do I want to spend or hide all my money so that I can get Medicaid? I know which one I'm picking. I'm going to get the private one so I can choose who I have and I don't have to worry about, you know, like competing with every other poor fucker who, who needs Medicaid covered services. There was also like t- two days before my story came out, there was an NPR piece about uh, Medicaid estate recovery and they did interview a guy from you know because it was NPR they had to interview a guy on the other side so they found this cunt from the American Enterprise Institute to uh, explain that um, it's actually good that Medicaid estate recovery happens because it encourages people to get you know they should get long-term care insurance instead if they want which is you know a, a product that is just like completely fucked <laughs> you know it's like that market is completely fucked because it's an extremely expensive thing and no one wants to wants to pay for it yeah if someone if someone needs Medicaid not Medicare, but Medicaid, mm-hmm. like how the fuck are they going to afford a long-term care insurance as well? And I'm right. uh, sorry, just like, I remember what I was going to say. Uh, the, fra- the phrase moral hazard, mm-hmm. I want to, I want to, we need a rich Professor Richard Wolf soundboard so I can just hit the bullshit button. <laughs> bullshit. I mean, like, uh, the, moral hazard. Yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> It's it's hazardous when things are too easy for people. But like, I mean, obviously that doesn't apply to banks or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it's the but classic like, it's the classic conservative thing of like just completely not perceiving their own use of these things. It's like that fucking Bethany Mandel post about how uh, you know, like I've been poor. I was on I was on food stamps and Medicaid and I'll never rely on the government for anything. You know, it's it's that mindset of like it counts when other people do it and not when I do it. Well, I mean, I think it's probably cuz like, you know, food stamps and Medicaid are pretty shitty. And, you know, if you're getting it from the government, like, you'd be like, well, like, this sucks. Fuck the government. But, like, would it have been better to have nothing? Like, I mean, or shouldn't that be an argument for making these programs way more generous than they are now? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, God, it it just reminds me of, like, when I was talking to Lydia, who's one of the people I talked to in the piece, you know, she has muscular dystrophy. She's had muscular dystrophy since she was, you know, in her 30s. She's 73 now. Uh, you know, she told me that she, you know, when she falls at home, she kind of has to crawl along the floor, bef- you know, to get up. Uh, she's very weak. She, her, uh, you know, her limbs are weak. Um, and, and she still said, you know, she was like, it's, I don't want to be on social security. You know, I don't want to be on Medicaid. I would work if I could. Um, and people always say that that is always the thing that these people say, you know, like when they're in these situations is like, you know, I don't want to be on X program. I would work if I could. And that's mostly because a, they would rather have more fucking money than they get on these programs because they're shit. Uh, and B, I don't know, I guess it's like, you know, sort of American dignity of work thing, um, or, or whatever, you know, people don't, people don't just sort of get on these programs, uh, for a laugh. And I, I wish, you know, I wish more people would, um, because 
you know, the state should be paying for their fucking health care. So. I mean, Libby, whenever, whenever I read your, your coverage of health care such that it exists in America, like I'm always just struck by like, how much more can people really take? Like, what, what is going to be the breaking point here about being, like, extorted at the penalty of, like, your life or the life of a loved one? Because, like, you know, whether it's uh, discovering that, like, uh, your, your parents' house is now foreclosed on because they accepted Medicaid benefits. Or I just think about, like, all the people in, like, the worst moment of their lives dealing with, like, you know, sickness and death. The amount of time that they have to spend talking to an insurance company. And this is for people who, who have health insurance and even good health insurance. Just, like, the, the tax that that imposes on people's, you know, like, this well-being and their, their, their soul, really, is to, like, negotiate with some fucking insurance company. Yeah. Over like, you know, whether something that like you thought was going to be covered it now isn't or is out of network or something like that. It's just like Libby, like, you know, this is sort of your beat. Like, it's just it astounds me. Like what when what are what is people's breaking point here for like what for how they're willing to be treated? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a question I think about a lot as well. Um because things keep getting worse. Uh, you know, the Affordable Character side, which, you know, was not a not a good law, but obviously there were several things in it that made things significantly better than they had been before. I think number one being, uh, you know, that insurance companies have to cover pre-existing conditions. Um, fucking insane to think about a world where they didn't, where you could have cancer and uh, the insurance company could say, no, sorry, you had acne, uh, so we're not covering your cancer. You know, that... I mean, apart from that, like health healthcare keeps getting more expensive. Um, you know, health insurance keeps getting more expensive. Um, and I I don't know anymore. Like I used to think, <laughs> you know, if you look back to the the salad days or whatever of twenty twenty, you know, I used to think surely people will, re- like you say, reach a breaking point. But I think having spent a lot of time talking to people who are going through various types of, of healthcare injustices and crises. I find that people are very, most of the time they don't kind of conceptualize what's happening to them as part of a broader like <laughs> problem or whatever. People are really good at sort of internalizing like, well, I should have done this. You know, the way people will say to me, well, I should have, you know, I should have gotten healthcare or I should have like been better at navigating the website and shit. And it's like, I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, this country is really guilty. good at like. Yes, I mean, like, people I do mean, feel I, guilty. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, they feel guilty for getting sick in the first place, and then they feel like, oh, you're right. Like, I I should have you know crossed my t's and dotted my eyes mm-hmm. um, to you know. So like now, like, I, it's sort of like I deserve it, right? Like, yeah. No, absolutely. There's a, there is a lot of guilt. Uh, and, you know, the other thing is like when I was doing sick note and, and talking to people in these situations a lot, I found that people would always say, and, you know, of course, I have it. I have it better than most or whatever. And, you know, some people I was talking to did have like, you know, decent white collar jobs. But these weren't I wasn't talking to like, you know, uh, like partners at law firms or whatever. People would say like, well, I have it better than other people because they were making like forty thousand dollars a year or something, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's true. You probably there are a lot of people that you do have it better than, but each <laughs> like at each step down the ladder, people find a way to say, "Well, you know, I have it. I, I should be grateful because I have it better than you know the person below me." And I think that's a really powerful influence, especially in healthcare. And of course, the the flip side of that is always the threat that it could be even worse. You know, knowing how much worse it could be for yourself.
right, we are back. Um, uh, sorry for the uh, minor audio and internet connection issues have been solved. Uh, my uh, minor existential crisis and problems have not been solved, but at least uh, have receded for the time being. Uh, but unfortunately, we've lost Felix. We've lost Felix. Uh, I, I, I turned my back to do some window shopping for a second. I turn around. He's gone. He's been taken. So if, if anyone sees a Felix around, uh, please let him know. Um, he needs to come home. We miss you. Do you think there's uh, a, a link between your existential crisis being solved and Felix being gone? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but welcome to the, um, the second half of the show now. Slightly better audio quality. Uh, I have I have my spoons are back, so you know I, I can talk again. Um, but yeah, no Felix. But do not worry. Let's have some fun. Let's dive into the reading series for this week, which comes courtesy from the New York Times, and uh, this is by a man named Stephen Ratner. Mister Ratner was a counselor to the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. So this is one of Obama's economics guys and the uh his piece in the opinion section of the new york times this week is called is working from home really working no fucking hell and okay i'll just respond to the the headline of the article um if you are still required to answer emails it's working it doesn't matter where you are if, if 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 you have to check your email and respond to emails or slack or do any task someone asks of you that's work. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I never figured out if this was like a, a myth or something, but that uh, French law where if you uh, respond to an email after six, you're like executed or something. I, I think we need to bring that in. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. So this is um, uh, this is Ratner, um, once again, dealing with the fact that no one wants to work anymore, or at least everyone, or everyone does want to work, but they want to work from home and not the office. So it begins. Quiet quitting, working from home. The Great Resignation. Whatever you want to call it, the attitude of many Americans towards work appears to have changed during the long pandemic, and generally speaking, not for the better. This new approach threatens to do long-lasting damage to economic growth and prosperity. Until COVID, most employed Americans had workdays that followed a decades-old pattern. Wake up, shower, breakfast, commute, spend at least eight hours in an office or a factory, commute home, and maybe enjoy a glass of wine or beer. Rinse and repeat every Monday through Friday. Wow, what a shame that um, that's changing. Seriously, just like the, like the idea that we're supposed to I think that's the height of like, you know, human potential is to fucking, to, you know, take a shower in the morning and then go to the factory and then come home and then you're allowed to depend on alcohol to, you know, get through the last like six hours of your day or whatever. It's fucking miserable. Look, your reward for making it through the day is perhaps a single glass of wine or yeah. beer. Right. And, you know, in the sort of in, in eight hours of work. Okay. Like, but what he is alighting there is the word commute. Mm-hmm. which that's like, I would say on average, like two hours there and back, like full full commute could be as much as two hours. And yeah. that's if you're like lucky enough to live kind of close to where you work. Right, right, exactly. Uh, and I think all employers should, from the moment you leave your house to go to work, that hour or so, whatever your commute is, that should be on the clock. Right, like right, absolutely. Look, well, I mean, they have to pay you, when you're going home, I mean, ideally they would, but you know, mm. I see like the workday's over. But yeah, like when I when I worked the job, the, the trip to work, I was like, this is this is gravy. I don't care. I'm reading my newspaper. I don't care mm-hmm. how long it takes. 
because guess what? As soon as I woke up in the morning or left my house, I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> so <laughs> if I'm, but, I, but if I'm not like at my computer or desk, I guess it's, it's still company time, but I'm just like, hey, this is, this is all gravy. The commute I had to do home after work, if it was delayed by even one second or, you know, uh, we were paused, you know, like, uh, due to an incident at uh, mm-hmm. uh, another station, like we are, you know, uh, it's just any second that I spent from the moment I left the office to coming home that was like delayed in any way or uh, uncomfortable was like agony. Because yes. once you leave the office, it's just like you're free. But you're right. not really free until you walk into the door of your house. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's telling like how many people you see who are just asleep on the subway, uh, not because they are like, you know, living on the subway, but because they are so fucking exhausted from their day of work that they just like they have to fall asleep there. Um, it's uh, it's it's really it's quite it's quite criminal. Um, and, and you're right. It's like that that sort of office spacey feeling of <laughs> being stuck in traffic or on a delayed bus or whatever on the way into work. That's, you know, that's relaxing. You know, you just play another round of, um, you know, like Bejeweled or whatever. What are, what are the games that children play these days on their phone? Fortnite? Um, I don't know. I think it's all those like mobile games that I get ads for where they're yeah. like crudely animated, like uh, things of like a, a woman catching her husband, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, playing playing horsey with a woman. And they're like, no, like, you know, would you yeah, like, yeah. confront him? Um, right, right. The, the farting uh, wife game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the farting wife. Yeah, the wives are, wives are farting everywhere. And then you have to like... <laughs> The the, the, way, the the mobile game character gets uglier or more fucked up. I don't know. Yeah. You got to use the like Luigi's Mansion vacuum to like suck up all the <laughs> fart or whatever. Um, but yeah, as you'll see where this, this opinion piece is going, he is very much opposed to working from home. Mm. And, you know, the extent to which like these jobs we're talking about were like, if you have a job where you could work from home, guess what? Your job is not essential to the maintenance of civilization. <laughs> if, if you had to stay working during COVID and like mm-hmm. go somewhere and leave your house, like, yeah, that's a job that matters. Everything else is like, it's just the added benefit. You're, 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 it, it's a paycheck that you get to like keep the economy going, basically. But it's not surprising to me that like a large swath of the American workforce, once they got even the slightest taste of what working from home like is like. And look, oh, yeah. It has its drawbacks too, because like the, yeah. the the blurring of like like the, that. There's no that your home is not like your sort of sacred safe space. It's also your your office. But the thing is, like I think most people have realized that like all things being equal, doing an email job from home is way better than having to go to an office to do an email job. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I, I mean, I think this is really the heart of the um, the kind of management crisis, uh, about working from home versus working in the office is that it's like, once you, (laughs) once you're at home, you realize how much of your day at the office, even though you were at work, you were not working. Like you were fucking around, you were like going back and forth to the kitchen, you know, kind of just like looking at the, you know, like looking in the stationary cupboard or whatever, just to waste time. Uh, and it's not like management doesn't do that. Management probably does that more than anybody, but it's this kind of like shared, um, kind of, joke almost you know it's this like shared fantasy that well when we're all in the office we're all working and that's real and we have real jobs and i'm doing my job you know it's like when those ceos post like you know here's oh, yeah, how i what, spend what, my yeah, their, day. their daily routine yeah exactly yeah and it's like you know 10 hours of like yoga and um you know envisioning <laughs> yeah. exercises and shit yes like exactly um all right but like let, let's see what ratner feels about this just okay like uh rinse repeat every monday through friday Just a fact of life for most, drudgery for many, and enjoyment for a few. 
most of those closer to the pinnacle of responsibility and compensation. Days were different during the height of COVID, particularly for office workers. No need to fuss about wardrobe, no wasted travel time, no hovering bosses, at least for some, a less crowded calendar of meetings. As lockdowns eased, many Americans began to reassess their relationship with work. According to a recent Gallup poll, the share of Americans actively engaged at work has been falling since 2020. Older workers in particular decided not to return to their jobs, a phenomenon that became known as the Great Resignation. If participant rates, participation rates had remained constant, about 2.1 million more Americans would be in the labor force today. Meanwhile, the number of Americans working part-time for non-economic reasons, i.e. not for a lack of available work, has climbed to near the January 2020 peak. Yeah, you see, now, all, now that is the issue, isn't it? People working part-time for non... People doing things for non-economic reasons. People doing things not because they have no financial choice not to do it, you know? Like I said, like, as this article goes on, I think you're really seeing, like... And again, this was a guy in the Obama administration. Right. Like, I, I, like, you're really seeing, like, once again, like, the, the T-800 flesh is, <laughs> is, is melting off the skeleton. And, like, for, for employers, like, work from home... The tasks that need to be done are getting done. But that's not what work is about for employers. No. If you're an employer, if you're like, according to Ratner, one of the few people at the heights of responsibility and compensation who actually enjoy their job, the workplace and offices of like email type jobs are kind of like, they're a temple for the, as Libby, you were saying, it is a temple in which the, like the priestess, the, like the priests and priestesses and supplicants all perform a kind of a ritualized theater of what work is. But for the, like the, the priests of this temple, it is about like uh, discipline and control over employers. It's not about, oh, here's a task you need to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, where's those reports? So you respond to this email. That is all secondary to like, the, like what having power over other people does. And like, um, or just a sense that like, is someone really working for you if you can't see them doing the yep. tasks you're telling them to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, you're totally right. And I think it's like, it's very telling that, you know, in this article, he has this sort of baked in uh, assumption that uh, only people who are the highest compensated employees are allowed to enjoy their jobs or are allowed to expect that jobs will be fulfilling. Um, you know, only the CEO can, uh, you know, gain, you know, kind of like can see work as also a place to get creative or spiritual or whatever kind of fulfillment. Yes. No one else is allowed to expect that. No. And like, as this article goes on, like, you'll, you'll see like, yeah, the workplace is for the people like who own the workplace, like for the employers, mm -hmm. the workplace is a place of not just spiritual fulfillment, but like I think kind of like yeah, like like a religious creed almost, mm -hmm. and like the ritual of going to the office, like he said, that rinse repeat thing, is about making sure that everyone is still believes, and like COVID gave a lot of people the opportunity for the first time to just be like, oh hey, like what if we just stop believing in this? Yep. What if what if like all the commercial real estate like really didn't need to exist? <laughs> Yeah, for the no, most absolutely. Part. And like, what if I, what if I could sleep in the middle of the day like a Spaniard? You know, like it's possible. It works. Oh my god! Yeah, Spain, they got the right attitude about work in Spain. Seriously, they just like firebomb you if you ask them to do something while they're eating their ham and cheese. It's perfect. And again, like that's the thing. Like, why eight hours at an office on top of like at least a two-hour round-trip commute? Right. That's why it's so important to keep everyone coming into the office for these people, because if they experience even like a glimpse of uh, something, another way of working or doing a job, then like they won't believe anymore. 
the power right. of it is lost. Right, exactly. So he says, and all back to Ratner, he says, and all that's despite the availability of nearly two full-time jobs for every unemployed American. You know, again, another big problem for these people is that right. uh, the question lurking in the minds of many with whom I've spoken, as well as my own, has America gone soft? Oh, dear. I mean, yeah, obviously. <laughs> We're on the internet all day. That's the def- that you're, you're suspended in a floating cloud of, of pseudo-interaction, of course, for fucking soft. A recent Wall Street Journal report noted that in a Qualtrics survey of more than 3,000 workers and managers, 38% said the importance of work to them had diminished during COVID and 25% said it had increased. The rest said it had not changed. Stimulus checks and less than normal spending during the worst of the pandemic encouraged these trends. At its peak, Americans had $2.1 trillion more in their bank accounts than customary. Today, they still have about $900 billion of excess savings. What? God, that this is a horrible situation. We've got to... We've got that people need less. They, people have too much goddamn money. I know it's so funny because it's like I can't. You can't fucking move online without seeing some article from CNBC that's like millennials don't have any savings. Like mil- millennials need to be putting more of their money into savings. Why aren't they saving? You know, and it's just like okay, well, do you want me to fucking save or not? Like, which is it? And then like the next week they'll have an article being like millennials aren't spending enough money. <laughs> right. Millennials aren't buying things the way they used to. Yeah. Stimulus. Okay, sorry. Many have resisted going back to the office, setting off a tug of war with their bosses. Why are companies so adamant about returning to the workplace? Every senior executive of the several dozen with whom I've discussed this issue believes that operating from home is simply less productive than being in an office. That is absolutely not true. No, I, I think not like, even honestly, a little like, bit. It, I think it is so much easier to be productive and manage the tasks that you have to do of a day. If yeah, like if you don't have to dress up and go through this, like put on the costume of going to the uh, the work temple. Right, right, exactly. Or you know, it's at least like you know, I I think I I know some people who say that they prefer going into an office sometimes because their brains like work that way or whatever. But I mean, the problem with that obviously is that then you need everybody else to be going into the office because like I mean, the fucking fast, like especially you know, like mid-2021, late-2021, where people were going into the office because they were required, but then just getting on Zoom so that they could Zoom their, their co-workers who were not in the office on the same day. I mean, it was fucking ridiculous. Like, it was just, you know, it's it exactly that. It was like the performance of uh, going into the office and being productive or whatever. And back um, to this guy's point about how, like, Americans just simply have too much excess savings and money in their bank account right now, and they've gone soft as a result of that. And the idea that, like, COVID changed Americans' relationship towards work, and 38% of these workers surveyed that work is less important to them than it used to be. Yeah. It's like, the idea that, like, just, like, two stimulus checks and, like, the, a slight, just a slight shift in perspective on work has rightly, I'm sure, caused a lot of people, if you have a little bit of extra money, and then you realize that, like, what you're—if you're doing your job, the same job that you're doing in an office, you're doing at home, Libby. It's like you said. You realize that there are there's not eight hours of work that anyone does in a day. The work that you perform in an office is being in the office. Right. That's that's work. And also, like the idea that like jobs are just like they're not as important to people's lives anymore. It goes back to like for people like Ratner and like the the, the high level executives he's talked to. Yeah. They are, I think morally offended by the idea that work is not a spiritual calling right or that like that their employees are doing this job because it's a a paycheck and nothing more it's not a calling yeah. it's not a it, it, 
this isn't a, a spiritual mission or like, uh, and I, yeah, I, I think they're very uncomfortable with that idea. They're just they're sort of like, oh, like these people that I pay my money generously to, like, don't actually like. They don't actually believe right. in what they're doing, or like don't like me personally, or don't don't think they're part of the same uh, uh, glorious uh, vision that I'm uh, enacting in the world. It's like, well, no, fuck no. Like this is just like you you wouldn't come to their house on the weekends and like mow their lawn for free, would you? Like, yes. No, like right. I think. I mean, I think this is sort of it's partly kind of classic um, tyrant uh, behavior. You know, like getting frustrated that you can't make people love you, um, no matter how yeah. <laughs> brutal and oppressive you are. But I think it's also kind of like. You know, for for people in these leadership positions, I think most people in general like to think of themselves as good people. And they, you know, people who, for example, are running businesses on the backs of underpaid and overworked um, workers, you know, there's kind of two ways that they can go about that. They can imagine them as just bugs um, and say like, well, you know, this is good for them or whatever. Or, you know, it would be really nice for them if they could imagine that all their employees actually really love them and really care about it. You know, this is where all that whole whole like, oh, we're a family thing comes from. You know, it's like it is disgusting and cynical and stuff. (laughs) But I think a lot of these like dipshit founder types really do wish that that was true so that they could justify it to themselves, this like extremely cushy fucking situation that they have. And you see it in the like the anti-union campaigns of like Starbucks and like the the line you hear over and over again is like, look, this is a family. Like we don't have to bring in like like a a third party outsider. Like, you know, like we're family. So like what do families do when they have a conflict? Like they, you know, they they come together, they talk it out. But the, the major implication of this is that in the family, your boss are is your parent are your parents mm-hmm. and the employees are children and they i think they view salary or health insurance as like basically allowance right it's it's like what they're, what they're giving you for being a good child and being part of the family you know like here's here's a little little spending money go to the mall have some fun this weekend you know right right exactly i do remember there was a story a while back and i don't remember where it was about you know it's kind of like inside the starbucks leadership and how they viewed the union campaign and at least you know the the reporting was that they were genuinely kind of like upset and blindsided by the idea Absolutely. that baristas were unhappy or whatever and I think that, I mean, I think this is almost harder to uh, to deal with or combat than just if they were like, you know, evil fat cats rubbing their hands saying like, how many more people can we throw into the meat grinder? You know, the fact that they yeah. want to think of themselves as good people is really, is really troubling. <laughs> it's really hard to get around because it's like, it's, I think it's so like ingrained psychologically in most people. Like there are some just true psychopaths out there, obviously. Okay. Radner continues. Collaboration is harder as is mentorship. That short, that short stroll to a colleague's desk to ask a quick question or make a request becomes a laborious process. Working remotely, quote, doesn't work for young kids or spontaneity or management, Jamie Dimon, the chairman and chief executive of J.P. Morgan, said in January at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos. That's such bullshit. I'm sorry. That's just such bullshit. Have they not heard of Slack? Like, you yeah, can't... Like, oh, yeah, like... Oh, oh, yeah, like... Uh, uh, Popping by a colleague's cubicle to like tap them on the shoulder and give a quick question like becomes a laborious process where instead of like walking to their desk, you just like type it. You just send them a text message immediately. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just send them a message like, hey, do you need anything? Like, (laughs) that's that's ridiculous. And here's the other thing. Like, I've heard this line like so many times about like why working in offices are important. And the, the, the word mentorship. Yes. That mentorship is lost when you're not in the office. And the thing is like, look, there are there are things that like are better done in person. Like meet like for instance meetings with more than two people. Yes. <laughs> like I absolutely Zoom is enervating as hell. I understand that. And like, you know, like we record the show remotely. It it works fine, but like yeah, 
when we're in person, like there is a little something extra there that like that it, that is lost through like the you know medium of a computer screen. But this idea about mentorship, yeah, I, like what they mean is like to be like I need to be able to mentor someone and like this young talent or whatever. And like I think what they mean is like they need the, the mentee to perform the like again like yep. the ritual of being uh, awed and like dedicated to them. Right. Or again, I think it's just it's... another word for like these guys just want to get laid. You know, like, just sort of like. <laughs> Yeah, David Brooks. It's harder to do sexual about, harassment. Yeah, to, exactly. Uh, I can't mentor my like, interns and marry them or anything. Yeah, no, it's. Um, I think you're right. It's all about kind of the the anxieties that these people have. You know, like about their own position. Um, you know, for example, if you are successful enough to have been, you know, to have worked in Obama's Treasury or whatever. Um, you know, I mean. I think being especially like a, a better off person in any large American city, you're surrounded by people who are much worse off, you know, like who are visibly poor and whatever. Um, and, you know, even if you work with, uh, you know, underpaid interns or, or whatever, you know, I'm sure there are these kind of like internal um, contradictions that they're trying to trying to like organize in their head. And one way to do that is to be like, well, actually, it's good that I am, uh, you know, old and overpaid because I'm a mentor. And that's how I pay it back is I'm a mentor. Yeah. I'm, I'm nurturing. I'm nurturing my children and helping them grow into better people. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny as well because it's like I would say traditionally like that, that you know, there's this idea of mentoring is like, oh, you're taking like, an, you know, a kid off the streets or whatever, you know, like, you know, you're taking some, you know, poor kid who is, whose dad is in jail to go play basketball or whatever instead of like some fucking Yale grad who is on their sixth internship or whatever and you're, <laughs> yeah. you're teaching them how exactly. to like- – <laughs> The people with these email jobs who have all graduated college, like they don't need fucking mentors. They right. need a paycheck and like direct deposit twice a month and health insurance. Like that's that, that's that's the only thing that these jobs provide that are necessary. Like all the things right. about like mentorship, uh, collaborate. Like none of that's important. Just keep those direct deposits going. Keep this fake economy continuing. Like the, that's right. that's what people want from jobs. Right. I mean, I thinking and, like, about a mentor. Like, a mentor that just means like they write a good recommendation letter when you apply for another job. Exactly. That's all like, that means. It's it's such a weird sort of like forced kind of a fake type of relationship there. You know, like oh I, well, I'm 22, so I need a mentor, or you know, I'm 46, so I need to mentor someone. Like there are obviously people who I've worked with in my career who are like older and more experienced than me and I've gained an enormous amount from working yeah, with them. Same. But if they had told me like, I'm so glad to have you as a mentee or whatever, I would have been like, <laughs> yeah. all right, see ya. <laughs> Never talking to you again. That's really weird. <laughs> it's it's like, it's such a, um, I mean, I, you know, maybe this just comes from like being in a different industry. I can imagine sort of like business mindset types, you know, people who do sort of business stuff. I'm imagining like sort of briefcase carrying guys. Maybe that's like really important to them and really valuable, but. It's like you need someone to teach you how to play the golf the right way. Right. You need, um, you need someone to teach you which uh, fork to use uh, for salad and which one to use for your entree. My fair lady. <laughs> uh, Jamie Diamond continues, nor he said two years earlier, does it work for those who want to hustle? Many employers simply don't believe that their staff members work as hard from home where distractions are many and supervision more difficult. Okay, here here we get into you know this is the carrot now it's the stick. really the great the greatest hits of all the fucking don't work from home tropes isn't it? Even some Silicon Valley companies that were early to embrace remote work are changing their tune. Mark Benioff, the chief executive of Salesforce, noted recently that the staff hired during the pandemic were less productive than longstanding employees, and speculated that lack of an office culture might be a reason. And Mark Zuckerberg, the chief executive of Meta, made a similar observation last week. Quote. 
in-person time helps build relationships and gets more stuff, gets more done. You're the guy who came up with the metaverse. You want people to be in yeah. person? You invented the metaverse. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and by the way, like again, like if, if Facebook employees were doing less and being less productive, they, <laughs> they would have tanked this, this company's sales of stock price launching meta. This right. fucking awful bullshit that no one wants. Right. Maybe it would have been better if they had been less productive and just kind of, you know, kept the website running. Um, I have another question. What the hell is Salesforce? <laughs> what what does Salesforce do? Good question. Let me, uh, let me see if I found the link here. They came out of nowhere. They all of a sudden became, they, it's like, uh, turn around, there's this giant building in San Francisco, the Salesforce Tower, and... <laughs> They've got a bunch of commercials with just smiling people high-fiving each other, not telling you what the fuck they do. Right. Yeah. It's got to no, be I mean, some sort of, they're, they're like sterilizing people or, or <laughs> it's, it's something New World Order related. It has to be. Right. It's, it sounds like a company where Johnson from Peep Show would, would work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a no. place that, that, that like clones really good salespeople. Mm. Like if if you've got a really yeah, good salesperson sales in your company, yeah. instead of hiring a bunch of other people who might not be as good, you take them to Salesforce. They they get their DNA and then they just clone them, and then you buy you buy a Salesforce from Salesforce. Right, salesman forty seven. This is your mission. <laughs> yeah, in, 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 infiltrate the trade show. <laughs> Right. I mean, this is kind of coming out of my childlike uh, lack of understanding of what most jobs are, like uh, thinking about what, what ad sales are, you know, like who, who are you selling to? How do you sell ads on a, you know, like a website? Like, how does that how does that work to me? To me, it's just that's just fake. That's, that's totally made up. OK, according to uh, Wikipedia, Salesforce Inc. is an American cloud based software company <laughs> oh, headquartered in San Francisco, California. It provides customer relation management, CRM software, and mm. applications focused on sales, customer service, marketing automation, e-commerce, analytics, and application development. That should clear it up. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Sounds like it's mostly like a big spreadsheet machine. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they make it easier for companies to like not have a person you can talk to, to <laughs> like, or just sort of like, like, you know, like a chat bot where you're like, right. oh, like we're looking for your order now. All right. Um, I mean, that does seem... Like what it is, yeah. But again, no idea. All right, so 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 that's uh, so we use the example of Meta and Mark Zuckerberg to be like, hey, like in person relationships, uh, you know, help. Here's his next example. Then there's Silicon Valley Bank. Even as COVID faded, much of the bank's leadership team remained dispersed around the country, which hindered communication and collaboration. No, <laughs> no the bank even no. warned in its annual report last month that it may experience negative effects of a prolonged work from home arrangement. Yeah. The, the, the ongoing fucking criminal fraud they were doing at that bank uh, was, was the result of not having enough in-person collaboration. What the fuck are you talking about? The absolute madman. He actually he actually did it. He said it. That is. And I love this because like great. the conservatives are like, oh, like uh, the Silicon Valley bank collapse happened because of uh, they were they were doing wokeness and gender. <laughs> and the Obama guys thing is like, oh, it happened because they weren't there was not enough mentorship and in-person collaboration going on there. It's like, yeah, they were woke from home. <laughs> this bank is a criminal fucking enterprise God. it wouldn't it wouldn't fucking matter like the people running the company dictate what happens in the fucking like what all what their balance sheet looked like or all, whatever right. other fraud they were up to yeah they know they were it too invested of, like, in woke industries yeah continuing 
But insisting on a return to five days in the office becomes harder if workers have the choice to, ta uh, to taking a job at another firm with a more uh, flexible policy. As a result, many companies have reluctantly accepted that the future will involve three or four days in the office and never Fridays. Uh, <laughs> what, what a dystopian nightmare here. And again, what is the problem here? It's because employees have more bargaining power now. And then like all these guys think that that's unfair. They think that that's a problem that needs to be solved because it's just like uh, the fact that like em employees can now be like, well, uh, I'll go to a job that doesn't make me come to the office every day. And they're like, oh, well, oh and then like I have the ability. I'm not like because of the, the, you know, the labor market, they have the ability to do that. And for these guys, this is deeply unfair and kind of like a betrayal. Like I said, like as like a parent, if like your kid is just like, yeah, you know, I'm. I'm considering taking an offer from a different family who uh, they're going to up my allowance and uh, extend my curfew past the 1230. Look, that's just business mindset. You know, if you're if your teenage son says that they're going to go live with the family down the street that has a has a pool and a better TV, then who's to blame? And by the way, whether you're in the office or not, a four day work week should be the model that people that we should adopt. Like the weekend should be three days yeah. because, you know, when I had an office job, the weekend is Friday evening, Saturday. And that's it. Sunday is not the fucking weekend. Because, like, Sunday, you can sleep in, but from about, once the sun begins to set, like, wane, like, mm -hmm. from 4 o'clock on, you are just dialed into just the fear. The fear yes. it creeps up your spine bit by bit. And I think, like, you know, I think Utah, like, the state government has shifted to a four-day work week uh, mm -hmm. for years now, and it's been very successful for them. Like, it's the acknowledgement that, like, there's not five days of work to do. Right. Yes, there, exactly. Is, is it, and four is being generous as well. But like three day three day weekend should be like a platform of a new political party in this country. Yeah. And like think how good it would be for the economy if people had another day to party. You know, they go out and they spend twice as much on booze. You know, it'd be great. Of course, the notion of flexible flexible work is a form of white collar privilege. Americans who labor in factories or in restaurants or stores don't have the luxury of working from home or the quiet quitting that can accompany it. It's fine with me for Americans to tone down or eliminate the rat race from their lives. Indeed, growing prosperity should allow for more leisure. In 1900, the average full-time American worker toiled for about 2,900 hours per year, or 56 hours per week. With industrialization, hours worked steadily declined, leading the economist John Maynard Keyes to predict in 1930 a 15-hour work week 100 years hence. It's been almost a century, but last year, Amer employed Americans still toiled for an average of 34.6 hours a week, roughly 1,800 hours per year. As productivity, as productivity increased since Keynes' time, we could have cut back our hours on the job far more than we did and easily maintained a 1930s standard of living. Instead, we chose to keep working in order to enjoy greater material rewards. Real incomes have increased more than sevenfold since 1900. I wish I had like the fucking simple mind of an economist who could just be like, well, people simply want to have more stuff. So that's that's why they would work longer is because they simply want to buy more things. And it's like, well, have you ever talked to a person? <laughs> and uh, the Keynes quote about how like in 100 years, like it'll be like, uh, I don't know, like a 15 hour work week because of technology and product, you know, yeah. increases in productivity and like the in technology or whatever that people laugh at that. Right. But like, I think it was David Graeber, one of his point, like in one of his books makes the point that Keynes was absolutely correct. There is now, as we were talking about, there's about 15 hours of work to do in a work week. But like, we're there. All, they're there all the fucking time. Like, yeah, I mean, thanks to companies like Salesforce, you know, we can really get that number down to, to maybe 10. 
Now many may be making a different choice. That's okay, but we shouldn't kid ourselves. Less output, whether a consequence of fewer hours or lower efficiency, eventually means a lower standard of living or a less quickly rising one. I'll concede that apart from the shrunken labor force, hard data on the impact of new work arrangements is at best inconclusive since statistics remain distorted by COVID effects. And I'll concede that technology, particularly video conferencing, has made remote work more feasible, particularly if structured as specific days designated as remote. Lastly, I'll concede that some of the time spent on commuting and perhaps personal grooming can be considered wasted. But we should be aware of different choices being made in other countries, particularly China, our biggest strategic adversary. The Chinese expression 996 means working 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. While the Chinese government has been trying to curb this practice as part of a series of labor market reforms, in many interactions with businessmen and investors there, I still find, I still find the prevailing work ethic extraordinary. Again, like, I, I, just, I don't understand whether I'm supposed to think that's good or tyranny. So like, yeah, uh, uh, China is a tyrannical country, but like we should be, um, I don't know, aspiring to like the hours of like a Foxconn, like a factory employee here. And again, like what is the point of being like the military hegemonic economic superpower in the world if everyone has to work as hard as, you know, like I said, a Chinese factory employee? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I also uh, it is funny to me that he, he thinks that quiet quitting is something that you can only do in a white collar job. Quiet quitting is just like not doing a very good job. You can do that in almost any job, really. You can just like not do a good job. It's really yeah. up to you. If I've got time to lean, I've got time to clean. Well, you know, I can pretend I can pretend to clean very well. Yeah, I mean, I've been to the post office. Like, sometimes people are not doing a very good job. Indeed, according to the Wall Street Journal, the property manager JLL found that office occupancy in Asia ranges from 80% to 110%, meaning that in some cities, more staff members are in the office than before the pandemic. By comparison, U.S. office occupancy stands at 40% to 60% of pre-COVID levels, lower than even Europe, which is at 70% to 90%. Again, like, I think it's the fact is like, why are more people in the office post-COVID in Asia and Europe than in America? I don't know, maybe because like the cities and communities in Asia and Europe have like mass transit and are like livable, walkable in a way that no one nowhere in the United States is. Yeah. And also just like fewer people like died from COVID. There's just less people here now to go into offices. Finally, at the end here, the changing work habits have spawned a push for a codification of what may already be a reality, a four-day work week. Legislation to that effect has been introduced in California, Maryland, and other states. Proponents argue that with an extra day of rest, diligent workers can accomplish as much as they did in five days. Perhaps, but put me down as skeptical about that and much of the notion that when it comes to work, less can be more. I hate that. I hate that. Thank you, That's... benevolent work father. God. That is, I mean, again, that really was just like a greatest hits of everything we've heard over the last uh, the last two years. Um, I think my favorite part is the kind of just sort of glancing look at uh, people who have jobs that require them to to go into a place. You know, like it's just like, oh yeah, and those people still exist. Anyway, the worst thing in America is, uh, you know, someone who who has a, an email job who sometimes takes an hour and ten minutes to make themselves lunch at home. You know. Just like completely sailing by that entire world of people that apparently just doesn't really care about at all. I mean, well, I think it's like, again, like I said at the beginning, like if you had to actually leave the house and continue mm -hmm. doing your job as regular during COVID, like your job matters. If you didn't, your job really doesn't matter in the sense that like, will do we have a civilization or people like dying in the streets? And I think the work from home thing has made that apparent to people in like white collar jobs in a way that they're like, 
their whole identity is based on having a white collar job and an office and going to an office building. Like, why? Because it means you're better than people who work in retail or fucking drive a bus or collect the garbage mm-hmm. or whatever. But I think they're like the loss of respect that they feel about like, oh, yeah, like working from home, the same as working from a job from an office is less of a quote unquote real job than, yeah, I said like being a train conductor. Right. And I, I mean, I think, you know, it, it really is all about this kind of anxiety that, you know, things are things are changing. I don't know. You know, they're different than how they used to be. And, you know, I guess this is kind of more of a Matt style point, but there is this sort of hollowness um, at the heart of uh, kind of American life these days. Uh, and with things that, you know, used to fill people's days, at least, especially these kind of older people who just still go to the office. They got 10 or 20 years till they can retire, uh, you know. They had eight hours a eight hours a day where they were going to a place and their life was organized around it. And now if that is being taken away, what what could they put what could they put in there instead? You know, we don't have religion anymore. Learning guitar, a hobby, video, well, video exactly. games are better than they've ever Do you know played. how many fucking good video games there are? Like it's great. I just finished playing Portal Two. Never played it before, but it's got Libby, I know the god, Stephen Merchant, turns in an amazing oh like part of the best voice acting I've ever like experienced in a video game so that's, I gotta that, that's my video game review portal 2 one of the best video games i've ever played all right excellent good to know i just started playing this unbelievably difficult uh pool game on the super nintendo on the switch thing it's, it's like these well, like, ja- uh, like billiards or like a yeah. swimming pool okay cool. yeah no it's completely inexplicable it doesn't explain how you progress through the levels at all um it doesn't seem to follow any of the rules of pool that i recognize uh, i love it it's perfect is it like extreme pool? No, it's, it's okay. called side pocket, um, Ooh, and right. uh, has all these like sexy women who introduce each level. It's it's uh, yeah peak peak nineties video game stuff. Love it. Sounds good. All right, well let, let, let's wrap it up there for today's show. Uh, Libby Watson, once again, always enjoy to talk to you. Have you on the show? Um, if you, if people want uh, to read more of your stuff. Where should they go? Uh, yeah, best thing is probably just uh, follow me on Twitter. It's uh, at Libby C. Watson. Um, just wrote an article for The Baffler about cancer. And uh, also just wrote a really stupid thing about putting shelves up for Digby and how she wouldn't use it. So you can go check those out. Wonderful. Oh, and, and from all of us here at the Chapa family, loved Digby. Absolutely. We, we I'll, love, I'll love, let her know. We love Digby. We love Digby, folks. We love Digby. All right, guys. Till next time. Bye bye. Bye. So gonna work from home. Yeah. You call if you need me. I don't think I'll be able to you said anyway. Yeah, I'm gonna stay in bed. Stare at the ceiling and wait for the sickness.